I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. I remember I received one slip note that said, um, oh, this is for, for black readers and black readers don't really buy enough books for you to sustain a career. I remember that on one occasion. Hi, welcome to Write Off, a podcast about writing rejection and how people get through it. I'm Francesca Steele, a journalist and writer in London. Writing rejection has been a subject close to my heart ever since I didn't manage to sell my own first novel last year. If you're interested, you can hear a little bit more about that in the first episode in this series or in the trailer. My guest this week is the British novelist Alex Wheatle. Alex has such an extraordinary story that when he was working in the writers' room for Steve McQueen's BAFTA-winning film series Small Axe, McQueen, the Oscar-winning director behind 12 Years a Slave, ended up making one of the films about Alex's own life. When Alex's parents were unable to cope with raising children for various reasons, Alex was sent to Shirley Oaks, a notorious Croydon children's home that just last year was the subject of an inquiry uncovering sustained physical, sexual and racist abuse. Alex experienced all of those things as a child. He emerged as a teenager in Brixton, undereducated and ill-prepared for adulthood, and in 1981 was sent to prison for a year for his involvement in the Brixton riots. Prison, though, turned out to be Alex's salvation. There, he met a man who encouraged him to revive his childhood love of reading, and from that came his writing. Several years later, Alex wrote Brixton Rock, as you'll hear, it took more than 30 rejections and an incredible amount of self-belief, but that book, about a Brixton care home kid, in some ways just like Alex, was published in 1999. Since then, Alex has published 16 more books, including his YA book, Cronkton Nights, for which he won the Guardian Children's Fiction Prize in 2016. In 2008, he was awarded an MBE for services to literature. Alex's books are all clever, realistic portrayals of places that don't really get enough of a look in usually in English literature, kids living in estates, gangland culture and so on. And yet they're not heavy, they're lively and funny and accessible. They're things that teenagers do actually want to read. Alex defines himself as a survivor, not a victim, and I found him an inspiring reminder of what can be achieved through perseverance. 
We talked a lot about the difficulties for black authors in publishing both 20 years ago and now, and also about the extraordinary advantage a love of reading can give kids in even the direst circumstances. So here's Alex. You're 20 years into a really successful writing career now, but you didn't have an easy childhood. You grew up in care after your mum and dad left and you didn't have a good experience there. I wonder if you could tell me a little bit about what that experience growing up was like and also how how it affected your education and, and your imagination. It left me with uh, very little confidence. I think that was the main thing where I struggled to believe in myself that I could... Um, I could produce anything that was worthy. And so it left me with this feeling that um, I was unwanted, unworthy, not valued, and that I'd never amount to much in life. And so even though when I look back, I was an avid reader from the age of five or six, I was reading comics. And sometimes as a child, when you're enjoying something, you forget that it's a skill set, you know, this reading. That I, that I had, you know, it seemed to come naturally to me that I could pick up something and start reading it. I'm not quite sure where that came from because my education was very uh, scatty and uh, disrupted, you know, through my through the ages up to 11 and onwards from 11 to uh, 16. So, uh, but I always had this reading ability. And I think in the end that saved me because when I ended up in prison and I had a, um, a dense text like the Black Jacobins, I could still understand it, process it, and I could comprehend it. And so I always had that to fall back on, even though in myself, I felt that I would amount to very little. And so I think that was the main thing, the main thing that I had to conquer. I mean, obviously there's physical scars, there's mental scars, but it was the belief I think that uh, perhaps I struggled with the most that I could actually, you know, I'm actually good at something. It took me a long while to convince myself. And I think many writers go through that same issue. Am I worthy of this? Can I actually have a book out there that can be seen in the shelves of bookstores and airport um, shops and, and so forth? But, so we have to have that inner belief, that inner confidence that, hey, my story is good enough. Hey, my story is worthy, is readable. And if, um, if, I, if I love it, then why shouldn't others love it? Mm. And so when I started to think about writing a novel, because I had tried my, um, I tried to write lyrics for songs. I tried to write bits of poetry and, and so on. When it came to writing a novel, I had to convince myself that um, the characters that I'm writing about, the situation that I'm writing about is just as important as any other. And I think that's why it took me so long to actually sit down in my late 20s, I think it was, to pen bricks and rock. Otherwise, if I had that belief, I probably would have done it a lot earlier. When you were in the care home, were you going to a school in that sort of complex? Up to a secondary age, I was going to a primary school within the complex. Basically, I hardly received any proper education there. It was basically babysitting kind of exercise. Okay. where, funny enough, most of the concentration was on gymnastics for some reason, because the, um, <laughs> the head teacher, he had, um, that was his thing. You know, he loved gymnastics, and I think he was involved at some kind of high level in his uh, young days. So, you know, we had about two or three gymnastics lessons a day. Or it wasn't that, it was um, uh, band music. Like, you could uh, have an option of learning to blow the French horn or trombone, because uh, Sherlock Children's Home had this history of doing parades. Mm-hmm. in central Croydon over the years. You know, I'm, t- I'm going back to the, um, the late uh, 19th century mm-hmm. where they used to parade, and they kept that um, tradition. 
And so it was required of anybody in Chirliac Children's Home to learn a musical instrument. I never did. <laughs> <laughs> I never did. I could never get the hang of it. So, but, but you had so an imagination. A, you had an imagination. Had an imagination. And you were reading yes, these I comic did. books and you were yeah. and you were thinking of that sort of stuff from, from early on. Was that an escape from the life that you were living? Because I was physically abused, sexually abused at times as well. So um, to, be, to be given a space to read a comic or any other um, book that I could find, uh, Huckleberry Finn was one that I found discarded on the dormitory floor. It certainly offered me a means of escape. So... You know, in those hours between my bedtime, eight o'clock, and until I fell asleep, I could just wander to a space where I felt safe. And that's what comics and uh, magazines did for me. So I, I, I cherished that. And this is why I believe reading is so important, especially at a young age, because we don't know what goes on behind closed doors. It doesn't have to be a children's home where a young person can be treated unfairly or be, or be abused. And so reading can offer that escape. It can offer some kind of solace, as it did for me. Mm. And I think if it wasn't for that, I really don't think I would be a writer today. Yes, I can see that. Alex, thank you so much for sharing that. I mean, what an awful experience. How incredible it is that you got through it and are here today talking about all the books you've written and able to look back on your past so wisely. And then in, after you left the home, you moved to Brixton and yeah. you had this experience that is in part fictionalised in Brixton Rock and um, yeah. and also the tale of which is told in Small Axe where you yeah. were part of the Brixton riots and spent a brief stint in prison. I wonder if you can tell me about that and, and the man you met who sort of changed everything for you by encouraging you to read. Well, moving to Brixton was a, in a way a culture shock for me, even though I'm obviously black. I'm from the uh, Jamaican um, background. My parents were born in Jamaica. But um, being a kid raised in Shirley Oaks, where it's kind of um, the surroundings of Shirley Oaks is very, um, very uh, rural kind of um, Surrey kind of belt, Sockbuster belt, if you like. Mm. So I kind of grew up with all those sensibilities around me. So coming to Brixton was like, what? What's, what's happening here kind of thing? So that was difficult for me. But slowly and surely... Um, I managed to um, feel like a sense of belonging for the first time in my life. Mm. And reggae music helped with that, that sense of identity that I so uh, sorely lacked. And so Brixton was Brixton back in the late 70s, 1980s. It erupted in um, what we like to call the uprising in 1981. I played a part in that. And so I was sentenced to a year's prison, Worm Scrubs. And there, um, very fortunate uh, for me that um, my cellmate was Simeon, who was an avid reader. And on his shelf, he had uh, books by Richard Wright. He had books by Chester Hines, um, so many. Uh, John Steinbeck was a big favourite of his. So I remember reading East of Eden. Um, so many. I, I even read Dickens, uh, Bleak House. I remember reading that. But again... <laughs> um, because um, I had that grounding, if you like, in reading from a very early age, no book was um, a big test to me. I could, I could gobble it up, understand it, comprehend it. Mm. And so really, that was my education. Who knows whether I would have been a writer, but um, being with Simeon definitely helped. It kind of reminded me of my love of reading. 
Yeah, I mean, I was going to ask, you know, it, it, it seems so random, so fortunate that you ended up with with him as a cellmate. And obviously, he turned you on to a lot of books that you felt very passionate about. Do you think you would have had a different path had you not met him? Hopefully, Francesca, I would have found my tribe, found my passion, found my writing and reading ability, uh, or reconnected with that uh, passion that I had as a young kid. It might have taken me longer, but hopefully I would have found it somehow mm. by hook or by crook. Mm. But um, at least that um, that meeting with uh, Simeon, that connection with him, it led me to be creative. That's the important thing here. So as soon as I emerged from prison, I started to write bits of poetry and lyrics and songs. So that creative energy in me was let loose. Mm. And uh, that changed my life because um, before I thought, the words in my head, uh, people would laugh at if I put them on a page or if I, um, if I performed it in any way, in any kind of space. I didn't have the confidence to do that. But because I had that experience with Simeon, who informed me that my story was important, my craft is important, my words are important, my life was important, they give me the strength to perform my words. There used to be uh, this poetry night in Brixton underneath the arches. And I would um, go to that and perform my poetry and my songs and people would clap and I thought, wow, oh my gosh, you know, people actually like what I produce creatively. <laughs> you know, that was an amazing boost to me. It really was. And so from that, I just, um, you know, in the end, I eventually uh, drew up the courage to um, write a full-length novel. Mm. So how did that how did that come about? Because that was I mean, Brixton Rock was published in 1999. And obviously, yeah, um, yeah you, your stint in prison was 81, 82. So, what, right, so yeah. what, when did you start writing the novel? And, and how did that go? And um, you mentioned before, you know, that you'd, you'd not had much self-confidence. I mean, self, self-doubt yeah. is such a huge part of any any debut novelist experience, I think. How, how did that go for you? And, and how long did it take you? Um, around about 92, 93. I mean, um, Francesca, I don't know about yourself, but um, I used to write on anything. Backs of um, record albums, uh, bits, of notepads, bits of notepads here and there, scraps of um, paper. These were the origins of Brixton Rock. Um, and also uh, based on a small part of my experiences or friends' experiences, especially my mixed race friends who had to, um, who endured their time in Shirley Oaks. And so I just cobbled all this, all these strands together and came up with the Brixton Rock narrative. And I started to write the novel ran about 93, 94 in longhand, which did no favours to my fingers. <laughs> so yeah, it was um, just a, collection really of scribblings and uh, rantings and uh, ideas and life experiences that I had that I managed to try to pull together. I, I just didn't know, I wasn't aware that you had to present your manuscript typed, obviously, double space and all that. I, I, I didn't know that. So I just went off to the um, my reference library and they had the writer's yearbook there. I'm sure all writers know about that or aspiring writers know about that. And so me, I thought I was going to make a million dollars. And so I went for the um, the most grand title possible, I think, within that um, writer's yearbook. 
And so there I went. I slipped my um, my carefully written manuscript into the, um, the the bubble envelope, and I kind of waited with crossed fingers. And um, I didn't get no reply. Oh God! I thought, what's going on here? What, what, what's going on? So I actually um, went to the literature agents concerned, and I asked the receptionist, "Has my manuscript been received?" And she asked me for my name. I said, "Alex Sweetal. I'm going to be a massive star one day." And we, had a little <laughs> giggle. we had a little giggle about that. And, she, and then she dropped it to me very slowly and politely that uh, Mr. Weetle, next time perhaps you should think about typing up your manuscript oh, rather God. than writing it in longhand. I was I was so crushed. Oh, I was God. so crushed. And I didn't look at my manuscript for about a year or so. And then um, I bumped into um, one of my old friends, my, my old hustler friends. He was a bit like a, a South London Del Boy. And uh, <laughs> he, he had all things and sundry for sale. And one of those items was um, a very old typewriter. And so oh. um, I bought it off him for £10. So on that typewriter, I typed up my first draft of Bricks and Rock. Even then it was rejected. I remember Stephen King came to the South Bank. I cannot remember what year. And he was talking about Carrie, his first novel. And he said that he received over 50. So I thought, okay, if Stephen King can cope with over 50 rejections, then surely I can. And by this time, I had about um, approaching 30, I think 28 or 29 rejections. So I thought, you know what, I'm going to carry on. I'm going to continue with this, my dream into a novel. Did it feel cathartic? Absolutely did. Did it feel nerve-wracking as well? Both those things, I think. I think writing for me, in a way, when I first started writing Bricks and Rock, it wasn't, I I didn't have um, the goal of being published in mind. For me, it was about my own mental health. And this is the way I dealt with it and coped with it. You know, everybody has to deal with a coping mechanism. And writing was mine, it was my self-expression, what I needed, because um, two occasions where I was offered counselling, I I rejected it because I just felt it very strange. I'm sitting down with somebody who I don't know, and they're asking all these very personal questions, and I wasn't quite the right person for that. So Mm -hmm. for me, the best way that I could express what's going on inside my head and my heart was through the written page. And yeah. so it definitely helped me deal with um, the trauma that I had because sometimes you're going through trauma, but um, you grow up and uh, you don't even recognize that it was trauma. You cannot, you cannot even identify as, uh, you know, that it destabilized me. And, and um, because of that trauma, I made um, very uh, sometimes dodgy decisions. And so it's through the writing process that I finally managed to look back without flinching and um, and started to deal and process what had happened to me as a child. Mm, yeah, and and so so it's, you spent a few years writing writing the book in longhand. <laughs> I know you mentioned you had you had about thirty rejections. Yeah. How long did those take in, in total? And, and what sort of things did they say as well? If you can remember, the general gist was that um, it wasn't for um, a reading audience. Or oh, it was very niche, and um, I remember I received one slip uh, slip note that said, um, "Oh, this is for, for black readers, and black readers don't really buy enough books for you to sustain a career." I remember that on one occasion. Wow! And so um, some, a few said they loved the idea, the story, but um, I needed to work on my English grammar. <laughs> I remember that, oh, okay. and I did work on my English grammar because it wasn't the best. I have to admit, um, <laughs> there's only three or four 
I think, agents that actually like the story. But uh, Tony Odd said that this wasn't for us. I cannot see this being published or this kind of story being published. But I just believed and I uh, hope aspiring writers have that same belief that um, every story is worth something. Mm. And I, I genuinely believed that and that's why I carried on. So what happened? You kept on sending off to agents and eventually yes, one said yes? Yes, I did. In fact, I was very close to being published with headline. I remember the, uh, that uh, particular letter was very encouraging. So were you where, sending um, to publishers at the same time as agents? Yes, I think yes, I was. Yeah. At that time, publishing houses accepted more direct submissions, I think. Some did, some didn't. Yeah. And, and Headline did. I didn't have a, um, an agent at the time. But I remember I was going to this writers group and uh, one of the, uh, the members there said they knew an editor at Headline. And uh, so I sent the manuscript to her. She couldn't get it acquisition, but she, she sent me a really encouraging letter, said to keep on going and, and so on. I smelt victory. I really <laughs> smelt victory. So that gave me an extra spurt. And I think within a few months, I was um, acquired by a very small publisher, Black Hammer Books, run by um, uh, a Rosemary Hudson, who was um, Jamaican-born, and she lived over here, and um, publishing was her dream. And Brixton Rock was a second title. So um, that was my beginning. And wow, you know, it was an incredible moment. So 30-something rejections in, you get accepted yeah. by by this smaller publisher. And would you yeah. remember what you did when you received that phone call or letter or whatever saying it was going, going ahead? I, I was very sceptical. I thought someone was having me on. When, uh, <laughs> Rosemary said to me, we want to publish your book. I thought, who is this? Who is this? You know, you having me on, but she said, no, I'm, I'm Rosemary Hudson. You sent me your manuscript. I love it. <laughs> so, wow, you know, I had a bit of a celebration with the family when I, when I received that news. It was such a fantastic moment. I mean, for someone like me who uh, didn't go on to further education, was expelled on a, a few occasions, you know, no proper, I had no proper examinations that I sat for. For me to get published was just an amazing achievement, I felt. You know, mm. it's my probably my single number one achievement of my career you know just to get that first book published was incredible looking back it sounds like you had so much innate resilience and and persevered but do you remember how it felt when you were in the process of getting those rejections and because also your story your story is very personal and in a way Mm. although it is fiction you know Brenton is 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 a sort of fictionalized version in some ways of you and the people you knew I guess and and also the, the the rejections in some way you know quite personal as well there aren't enough black readers to sustain your career and and that that, how did that all of that feel to you over that time period which was presumably a couple of years or it felt like I guess some people might say this is this might sound cocky or arrogant but I kind of believed what are you talking about you know I mean (laughs) I remember my my partner at the time would say uh, I I would say to my partner I'm gonna call him up I'm gonna I'm gonna have a debate about this I'm gonna call him up and argue my case and she would say no you can't do that you can't Mm -hmm. do that but if I if I did call him up I would have said why why are you rejecting my work this is fantastic this 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 is worth its place on the bookstores in any in any town, you know, I would I would have argued my case. I had I always had this belief that the story was worthy and valuable. I always had that, even though yes, of course you're disappointed. I mean, when you receive when you open that envelope, because of those days, 
I'm not sure how it goes today. I guess it's email or whatever, but you know, this, this is the mid 1990s. When you receive that envelope and it's from a publishing house and you see the, the stamp and everything, you kind of have a genuine sense of adrenaline and you think, wow, this could be the moment. But for them to say, no, it's not quiet for you. Of course your heart sinks. Of yeah. course it does. And um, if you had a cat, you might want to kick it. And you know, <laughs> with me, I used to go to Clapham Common and sulk under the bandstand of, oh, oh no, you know, mm-hmm. um, would this ever happen for me? But two, three days later, I'd be up again. I'm thinking, okay, who can I send it to now? Someone out there is going to like this. And I genuinely believe that. That's amazing. What do you think would have happened if it hadn't sold? Would you have written something else and just moved on to another story? I think so. I really think so, because um, as I said, writing was my therapy and I would have definitely continued to write, even though I was receiving rejections. I mean, I was writing bits anyway, even though I was submitting Bricks and Rock to publishers and literary agents. So that would have continued. And I I always had the opportunity to express or perform my works in um, poetry jams and so forth. So I'm sure I would have been creative. Um, It would have formed part of my life, you know, up to um, I'm 58 now. And I'm, I'm sure I would have been still doing that. Mm. There's something really interesting you say at the end of Brixton Rock, mm-hmm. where you say that the inventiveness of your friend's language was amazing to you because, um, because as you've mentioned here, actually, you, you'd grown up in, in Croydon and, and, um, mm. and, and outside of that space. And then you moved to Brixton and this patois and this, this dialogue that, you, that you, is so vibrant in the book was new and vibrant to you when you got yeah. there and you were sort of observing it as an outsider. And it made me wonder when I read this, if people assumed <clears throat> when you wrote in Brixton, when you wrote in Brixton Rock and submitted this, that people just assumed in a way that that was less hard work for you, that it was actually your patois and that you were just sort of plonking down on paper what, what you already knew. Was that was that a feeling that you felt and experienced yes, and encountered? Yes, it was a feeling I had because um, that inventiveness of the way people interact with each other, you know, especially the young people of Brixton, was something I didn't grow up with. It didn't come naturally to me. Mind you, though, because um, I had to observe so many conversations and listen and pay attention, I guess I picked it up that bit quicker. Mm -hmm. I had to, to interact with these people, you know, these young people, to be part of, I guess, when you're that age, no one wants to be an outsider. You want to belong to something. You want to um, mix in with everybody and don't stick out. So I was no different. So I I was like a sponge, just just, um, absorbing it all. So, yes, I think at at times in my career, it's been quite unfair that people just expect me to come up with this um, bouncy dialogue because it's never came natural to me, even in my Cronkton books. You know, mm. I've got, I work very, very hard on the dialogue, even in Cane Warriors, which is set in Jamaica, 1760. Uh, I always pay much more, some some might say much more attention to the dialogue than the prose. I mean, it's where my skill set is, so I don't mind mm. working hard at it because every writer knows their strengths and their weaknesses. And my definite strength is my um, one person, um, first person narrative and my dialogue. So I work extra hard on that. I don't relax. I don't kind of, um, I don't take it for granted that it's always going to come. And so I'm always listening to different um, people speak all over the country. So for instance, I might be in Edinburgh, I might hear a cool phrase and that might make it into my Cronkton series one day. Or I could be in Devon or Cornwall or, or I could be listening to a hip hop track out of New York, you know, so I'm a sponge for anything that sounds really cool, really uh, trendy and so on. So I just put it in my 
what I call a literary melting pot. I mix it up, brew it up, mm. and it comes out on the page. Yeah, and it and it really comes across. I think, I mean, definitely as a reader, that do, that does feel like your strength. It's such a joy to read. Um, Quankton, which you've just mentioned, Quankton Knight is one of your children's or young adults books, I should say, and won the 50th Guardian Children's Fiction Prize in 2016. You actually already had an MBE, but I think mm-hmm. in which you'd got in 2008, but a wee while ago, you switched from adult literature to children's literature yeah. and YA. What, why the switch? Um, I was um, getting invited to um, so many more schools and I was to um, literary festivals around the country. And so it, it seemed like a natural step to write for that audience because schools, especially in London, Manchester, Birmingham, they wanted me to uh, visit their schools, talk about my journey and uh, talk about East of Acre Lane, Brixton Rock, because the characters are, what, 17, 18? And so at least year 10s and year 11s could relate to those characters or even times year 9s and year 8. And so for me, it was a natural progression. Uh, you know, have characters who are 14, 15 rather than 17, 18. It wasn't too much of a, a breakaway for me. And I absolutely enjoy it because I remember going back to that age when I was, uh, and it was so awkward, sometimes so funny, so embarrassing. Um, all of us can remember those uh, awkward moments when we were that age. And I think it's fun to go back and reflect because sometimes as adults, we forget how intense those feelings were of embarrassment or maybe fancying somebody from across your desk to another you know, and those moments, and those moments where you feel like the world is um, going against you, and those moments of being a rebel, and you know, rebelling from your parents, and all things like that. And I, I enjoy that. I actually really enjoy the writing process when I'm describing those characters and those situations. Do you feel like? publishing in general has changed at all since um, the mid to late 90s when you were trying to get Brixton Rock published and and receiving rejections like the ones you said which said you know there's no there's no readership for for black writing anybody would 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 write that down now but does it feel like a different place? Yes it does in terms of um, if I can speak about my second novel uh, East Mm -hmm. of Acre Lane was published by HarperCollins now, I had an editor there, Leo Hollis, a great champion of my writing, and he really wanted to um, see my career grow. And so basically, Leo, um, at the acquisition uh, meeting, say, look, I just want to publish Alex Weetor. I think he's a great writer. And so he was allowed to do that. Um, today, um, say 20 years on from that, um, sometimes editors they might have this great novel that they want to publish, but they might be denied by um, people in sales or international sales or marketing. And I think that's um, not good for our industry because sometimes they go on by what has sold earlier or what has made money for them beforehand, rather than looking at the quality of the work that lays in front of them. So I think that industry has changed in that aspect, definitely so because I know many editors who sometimes leave acquisition meetings in tears because they cannot um, green light the books they really want to work on, mm. especially in the larger publishing houses. It's, it's no coincidence that um, many of the smaller publishers, they get in so many um, uh, awards for their publish, for what they publish on their list, because sometimes the big companies are too kind of um, uh, risk averse and they don't uh, green light projects that they should do because of the quality of the work. It's sometimes, as I said before, um, you've got these middle people who kind of block a fantastic 
project or idea. So it's changing that way. That's a black writing. Uh, obviously, over the years, we've managed to uh, see published all, all a diversity of writers, not just in colour, but on the themes that we are presenting to the publishers now. I mean, you could read books about the black experience in all shapes and form, which I think is a fantastic thing. My only regret is that not too many um, black male writers in the UK are being published at the moment. So, you know, I'm always looking for new arrivals in that field, but there's not too many at the moment. So um, we need we need work on that. Maybe maybe the skill set is um, for writing is going into grime or other or other uh, art forms. Who knows? But um, speaking to my agent, she says she very rarely receives manuscripts from young black men who live in the UK. That's interesting. Do you think that um, not necessarily even black men, but perhaps young men in general think of it as perhaps, I don't know, a feminine pursuit or just creativity in that way might be seen as not very manly? Could well be. Could well be. I remember, Francesca, that when I mentioned to friends that I'm writing a novel, they would smirk and giggle and what's Alex doing? Is he becoming a girl? You know, that, <laughs> that was in the mid-90s. Maybe, maybe there's, that still exists in some way or form. But um, I know there's the creative energy. I've been to secondary schools in uh, in a London, in a Manchester, and so on. I know there's um, a buzz about creativity in a written form. It's where that written form takes those artists of what field they want to operate in is the uh, important question. Do they want to write novels? Do they want to be grime artists? Do they want to be poets? I mean... Uh, Joe Biden's inauguration, we had, um, I cannot remember her name now, we had that superstar, what's her name? Yes, Amanda. Um, Amanda Gorman, was it? Yeah. Amanda Gorman, and she wowed the world, didn't she? And yeah, so it was amazing. That, that is all fantastic and brilliant, but are we going to lose all their young talent trying to emulate her rather than writing <laughs> fiction and novels? That's such an interesting question. Yes. And then there's sort of one one ceiling breaker and then no one else is allowed to get through the, the gap. Yes, they left. There's, that, there's that issue too. So, you know, writing a novel is not easy. You probably know this, Francesca. It's not easy. You've got to dedicate yourself to it. You've got to live with those with those characters in your head for a long while or sometimes if you're living with a partner they think where's your mind at kind of thing you know <laughs> but um but it's it's a long process isn't it and how long does it take you on long average commitment how long does um, it take you on average to write a book and and how and where do you do it normally at home if the um if it's a nice spring day or summer's day i might take my laptop to the bandstand at clapham common and spend a few hours there um, for the Crompton series, in general, ran about eight to nine months, I finished your first draft. And then, of course, there's the editing process that I work with my agent and then my um, editor at the publishing house. So normally around about a year, a year or so. Um, for a novel like Island Songs, which is set in Jamaica, obviously I'd have to do a lot more research. And that particular book took me about three to four months researching about a year three months to write and then another three months or so of editing so almost two years it's quite so, it's quite quick really and you're, you're pretty prolific I mean I think it's have you written 17 books is that right something like that yeah <laughs> I yeah. think the moment you say something like that you've written a lot <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah um yeah, yeah so I, I noticed you did change publisher from your between your first and second book you picked up by by a much larger publisher H yeah. how did that happen what and what was that like 
Well, I felt really bad, to be honest. I mean, obviously, Rosemary found me, but obviously, she's a small press. And, you know, I want to make a living out of this if I can. And so HarperCollins came along, they offered me a contract, and I signed, and I still feel bad about it to this day. But, um, you know, creatives, you know, even though it's fun getting published and fun to see your books on bookshelves in all the towns in the UK and beyond, mm. you want to make a living as well. Sure. So, um, so I decided to give up work. I was working as an engineer. Um, uh, we used to make uh, components for um, aircraft in a factory in Northwest London. And I thought, you know what, um, I really want to commit to my craft. And so I decided to um, sign with Harper Collins, give up work and concentrate on writing full time. And was that on the basis of Brixton Rock having done so well that Collins approached you? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, because that was very well reviewed. People were talking about it. I was interviewed a lot on radio and so forth. So um, that opened the door for me. What was it like having had, you mentioned before, writing being your therapy, helping get rid of that self-doubt you had had, lack of confidence you'd had as a child growing up, and then suddenly you're not just writing alone and using that as your therapy, but having to talk to people on the radio about it yeah. and talk to me now. What, what was that like? Because that's quite a different skill set and a very like a very yeah. different type of exposure. I had to learn that, Francesca. It took me quite a while. I remember I was asked to go on Newsnight. I think it was Jeremy Vine asking me asking the questions. I cannot remember what the subject matter was. And I remember freezing. I had this brain freeze moment, you know, where nothing would come out of my mouth. And so it took me a, quite a while to adjust to that new kind of experience of being on live TV, uh, being in a, a BBC radio studio with a big fat microphone on the middle of the table where you're aware <laughs> of all the hundreds of thousands listening to this particular episode. So um, it took me a while. Um, hopefully I'm a bit more confident and easy now, but at the time, sometimes I found it terrifying. You seem like a natural at it now, but I guess you've had 20 years of practice. <laughs> yeah. um, what have you, if anything, have, is there anything you have learned from the rejections that you received over Brixton Rock? Because, yeah, it was, it was quite a lengthy period and, and you'd already had, you know, a, yeah. a, a lifetime of rejection before that, really, in a personal sense. So was there anything that you learned from publishing rejection or writing rejection? Um, to believe in my own talent, I guess. And uh, I have to thank Simeon for that, my cellmate. He instilled that in me. I remember him reading it and he said, Alex, this is good stuff. Those were his words. This is good stuff. This is a story that needs to be read and needs to be told. So stick with it, my brother. That's what he would say. And so um, I guess his issues uh, were that um, improve your grammar, make sure it's readable, you know, all those kind of um, advices that he used to give me. So I believed in him. And so that made me believe in myself. And get a typewriter <laughs> or a and computer. Get a typewriter. <laughs> yeah. Uh, just going back to my first computer, it's one of those Amstrad things. You're probably too young to remember this, Francesca. Yeah, I do right. vaguely remember Amstrad. <laughs> yeah, they, they had this dot mat matrix printer, and I used to print my work at night, and it used to um, infuriate the whole family. You mentioned your family during the process of, you said you celebrated with them when you heard that Brixton Rock was being published, did you mean your wife and children in that celebration? Is that, yes. is that who you mean by your family? So when, yes. you, were, when you were writing um, and, and when you were attempting to get Brixton Rock 
published. I mean, I, I have two small children, so I, I know it can affect the way you approach writing or anything. Did that impact your your need for for publishing success or how you dealt with anything? I guess my main motivation was is that I wanted them to be proud of me, proud of their dad, you know, my kids. And my wife proud of me too, because she's seen the... Um, um, you know, me not in the best light sometimes. She's seen, she's seen me struggle with, with my mental health. She's seen me struggle with life, accepting, um, you know, going through that process of uh, facing up to that trauma from my past. She's seen all that. Mm-hmm. So to actually celebrate with them, hey, you know, despite everything, I have this book. Isn't it a beautiful thing? And so I think we went out somewhere to, just to enjoy that moment. I think we had dinner somewhere. I cannot remember where. <laughs> and, you know, my book was on the table alongside me and my kids were looking at it. And even though they still see me as dad, it was a, a special moment. Yeah. Know. Again, it, it, it gave me that sense of um, confidence, if you like, that I can achieve despite what has gone on beforehand. Yes, I suppose in a way, I mean, I was going to ask, you know, what, what was the moment when you when you felt successful? But maybe it's just a really incremental po- process by bits. Yeah, I, I think so. I think so. Um, but nothing's beyond us, really. You know, um, it's so nice that um, sometimes I'm nominated for this award and that award. But really, the biggest thrill, the biggest sense of achievement I had was when that first book was published. Mm. You know, you, you cannot get away. I cannot get away from that moment. I can remember it vividly, mm. seeing my book in, in the border store, the whole wall, because I had an event there uh, soon after publication. I think it was March 1999. And I'm backdropped by something like 50 books of Bricks and Rock. <laughs> that, was, that was such a proud moment. You yeah. know, and then the, and then people starting to sit down in front of me, waiting for me to address them and uh, perform a reading. And I was so, so nervous, but so, so proud. Do you think that the industry or readers can do anything to improve things for writers of colour? I know you've talked about school um, curriculums changing and things like that. Yeah. Is that... De- definitely. Uh, our books could be included in the school curriculum more, especially in a historical aspect. But also, we don't just need writers, Francesca. We need more editors, we need more agents, we need more marketing people, we need more salespeople. You know, we need to fill all those positions, you know. So um, that is what is lacking at the moment. And I think until we do, um, you know, we might struggle to get our stories um, acquired or or questioned. But um, hopefully we can encourage um, our young to go into the publishing profession because it's very expensive, because it's very... London-centric. And um, even though this pandemic has been absolutely appalling, I believe it offers us the opportunity in the publishing world to reshape our model of business. So many people in our business have been working from home for over a year. Do we really need those big spaces? So hopefully this will open up uh, potential uh, possibilities of people in the regions, living in the regions, mm. you know, Durham, Newcastle, uh, Manchester, wherever. Maybe these big publishers can open up small offices in the regions of the UK so we can attract all the talent where you don't have to pay um, extortionate rents to live in London to join the publishing uh, publishing world. Mm. I really hope that we get to see that very soon. 
Um, in Brixton Rock, Brenton, um, who, as we've said, is a sort of fictionalised version of you, I think, is that a fair way mm-hmm. to describe him, by the way? Yeah, I'm always conscious less, yeah. that, you know. <laughs> he tells his social worker, and I quote, you can read all the books you want, but that won't make a difference because you don't actually know what it feels like to live my shit of a life. Do you think that that's true that's or can me. books transcend that a little bit? That is me. That's probably how I felt at 16, 17, 18, 20 years old. But um, I think books can transcend that and books can lead to empathy. I really strongly believe that. I think the more you read, the more empathy you inbuild in yourself. And so there's no doubt that I think that um, if that social worker who I described in that scene um, actually um, read books by the likes of Brenton Brown or whoever, and so they could feel their um, their pain, their life journey, and they could feel their, um, their lived experience, I think. We all become much better people, don't we? Mm. Um, Do you ever dwell on what a hard, you know, difficult hand you were dealt in early life? Does it make yeah. you angry? Or does it does it yes. still occur to you? Yes, I'm, I'm human, Francesca. So there are times that I wake up, ah, you know, where I let the rage out. I might scream um, in the early hours in middle of and Common, <laughs> something I've done before, um, I'll have to admit. Yes, of course, um, I get angry. But also, also, Francesca, I've travelled quite widely. You know, writing has given me that opportunity. And so I've been to the ghettos of Kingston, Jamaica. I've seen children with absolutely nothing. And that humbles you. You know, I've seen real hardship, real hunger in places. I've been to South Africa where um, uh, I went to a township there in a festival. I went to a festival a few years ago and I was taken out to one of these townships. And, um, you know, in in these communities, sometimes um, the electricity goes out for three, four days. Mm. You know, and they don't have the books and texts that we do in the UK. You know, if you want to have a book, you know, you've got to treasure it. You got to, you know, and once you read it, you got to pass it on to somebody else so they can enjoy. Mm. You know, I don't like to look at myself as a victim. Mm. I like to look at myself as a survivor. Mm. You know, uh, yes, it's very um, unfortunate start for me, but um, I have to make the best of what I have because it's even though it's unfortunate, it's a much better start than a lot of kids in this world that I've seen that I've seen up close. So uh, that gives me energy, that gives me motivation to continue. Yeah, we have to, you know, be balanced, I think, and appreciate what we do have. Yes, I'm the first one to um, have a go at governments who might fail us or might fail poor working class people. Oh, I'm going to be first in the queue for that. But also, I do appreciate that um, in the UK is where I made my name is where I read my books in my formative years, is where I established myself. So I'm very proud of that. But I'm I always I always gonna have an eye on those who, um, who suffer in this world because I have that inbuilt empathy because of what I went through. And I, I always try to serve that in my writing. Thank you so much for listening to Write-Off. I hope you've enjoyed it. Um, If you do have a chance to leave a review or rating, I'd really appreciate it. You can do that in your podcast app and it really helps people find the podcast. Plus, it just makes me feel good, to be honest. Guests still to come on the podcast include Michelle Roberts and Douglas Stewart. 
You can also find me on Twitter. I'm at Francesca Steele with an E at the end. So do pop along and say hello. Um, hope to see you there. Bye. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.